Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. The Cutting Room is a part of the podcast section of The Art of the Guillotine. Each week, The Cutting Room visits editors in their cutting rooms, where they discuss their experiences and techniques. This week, I'm excited to share an interview with Michael Tronic, editor of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, SWAT, and Hairspray. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Cutting Room. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes by searching The Cutting Room. Don't forget to join the email list at theartoftheguillotine.com. We'll send out updates, news items, and you'll be eligible to win monthly prizes. How does your early work in post sound influence the way you edit? It, uh, I was a music editor for from 77 to 86. And in that period, um, and I played instruments as a kid, so um, I think a lot, of ed- a lot of what film editors do is, is about rhythms and because I was a drummer at one time and um, as a as my training as a music editor kind of honed my um, made my awareness of rhythms and uh, especially with dialogue and how people talk and uh, I think a lot of that dictates cutting patterns and all um, but yeah it definitely influenced how I cut picture and um, I think it's it's kind of an unorthodox way of of getting into film editing, but it, I, it proved to be a, a pretty valuable asset. One thing I'd like to know is, do you go back and do research when starting a new project? For example, did you watch the original Hairspray prior to beginning work on the current Hairspray? I purposely on Hairspray, I didn't. Um, I saw the, I'd seen the film, the John Waters film. But I didn't see the stage play, which the movie uh, was primarily based on. Uh, I didn't want to be influenced one way or another by any type of representation. I wanted to start fresh. Um, But that was kind of a culmination of all my years cutting music and cutting dance sequences. So um, the, the research I did, actually the most valuable thing I did was take a vacation before starting it and trying to get as much rest before flying to Toronto and starting the project. The director of Hairspray was Adam Shankman. Prior to directing, he was a choreographer. How do you think this influenced or affected the way you edit? And also, how did it affect your working relationship? I'm, in my career, I'm really fortunate in that I'd worked as a music editor with uh, Stanley Donnan, who directed Singing in the Rain, and I did two movies with Bob Fosse, um, All That Jazz and Star 80. And I'd cut um, chorus line that was choreographed by Jeffrey Hornaday. Um, and my wife is a huge dance fan. And I never really w- was in terms of performance, but she got me to go to everything from Pina Bosch to Bejart and a, a very eclectic exposure to, to dance. And I developed a, a real appreciation. Um, I think choreographers are, u- in u- are unique in that they have an, uh, an un- they've got a well of creativity that knows no end. And um, I think that has to do with the art of interpreting music into dance and thinking, no pun intended, on your feet. And um, so it's just basically knowing and recognizing what a good dance sequence is, you know, going through the different takes and knowing. Uh, when if there's more than one dancer, as far as what the unison looks like, make sure they're in their marks, the kicks are good, and all that. And um, 
it worked out really well on, on Hairspray. I mean, Adam uh, was very particular along with his co-choreographers in terms of selections and things like that. But we were, we were right away on the same, same wavelength as far as approach to dance numbers. How do you think editing musicals nowadays differs from earlier musical works such as Singing in the Rain? Well, I, you know, not having been on the set of Singing in the Rain, but being fairly familiar with uh, older musicals, uh, the coverage is a lot different. Um, I think now there are so many multi-camera, I mean, on the exterior of Welcome to the 60s, there were six cameras, which actually, on the Jonas Brothers, I have as many as 36, so it all varies. But I think on the old musicals is that the, the, the pace of cutting was probably not quite as rapid. Uh, I think they have a tendency to be a little more classical in terms of staying in masters and wide shots because if you have these great dancers, it's like, why cut? Uh, and then that holds true for just about anything. You know, dialogue, if you've got good performances, like and if there's no, if I don't like unmotivated cuts. Um, so I would imagine that um, stylistically, you know, it's just, it's just like anything else. It's, it's fashion. It's what's, what feels contemporary. Although I thought Hairspray was very true to the period of the early 60s. If it was a 2006, 2007 movie, it probably would have been a lot flashier, but everything from costumes to production design to the way Adam directed and choreographed was very true to the era, and that's, and that's something I kind of tipped my hat to and was very cognizant of in, in the approach to it. One thing I noticed with musicals is that we still rely on the wide shot to show the dancing. How do you cut in to engage the audience emotionally with the characters without jarring the audience? It's, that's a really good point. And usually with a musical sequence, rhythms will, t will tell you, um, although there's really no rules. Um, like anything, for me, the primary objective is performance. If I see a good expression in one take of, let's say, Tracy Turnblad smiling or something like that, and I, that tells me something about her character, what she's experiencing at that moment, you know, I'll use that. And um, if it's if it's a weird place in in in, in the measure, you know, usually it can be modified or, or massaged so so it works out. Uh, but staying wide is important in terms of just geography. It's like an action sequence. You know, you, audience has to know where they are to, in order to understand the sequence. And the same thing holds true for dance. That's a good point. You need to know where you are. And throughout hairspray, they're constantly traveling from scene to scene. Adam was great with his coverage because he'd, he'd always let you know where you were. And um, it's something I kind of learned early on from working with in Bruckheimer films. And he's very, he pushes geography a lot. You know, he wants, doesn't want to be confused unless, you know, it's, you're intentionally trying to keep the audience in the dark about something. But, um, I mean, Adam was very, he designed his wide shots, usually, you know, dollies or cranes and things like that. So they were they were graceful, and in a way, the, the camera became a dancer as well as far as, as far as movement. Very little static cameras. Nowadays, green screen is used so frequently. How do you work with the special effects team to get what's best or maintain what's best for the story? Well, it's it's um, it's evolved dramatically. Uh, when a green screen would be shot in the old in the old days, you know, first of all when I was cutting film, you couldn't go ahead and just do a composite. It had to be sent out to an optical house and they would have to do it, you know, pick out the plate and say what you wanted. But 
with the Avid, you can basically just do it on, on in, within the application. Um, I'm not one of those editors who gets too mired down in the technology. I give it to my assistants. I mean, I can do it, but I don't want to. I have a story to tell. So, um, but, um, so my assistants will go ahead and make composites for me. But I learned a lesson from, uh, from Doug Lyman on Mr. and Mrs. Smith whenever there was a blue screen, and I didn't have time to do it. I'd show him a shot with a blue screen, in it, and he would say, what's that? And I said, well, there's, Br there's Brad Pitt, and behind him is the highway. And he says, well, I don't see it. So I said, oh, you need, okay. So I got it right away. So we had, that was the beginnings of, uh, of, a, of pushing the visual effects editors beyond merely keeping track of shots, but actually compositing more sophisticated shots. And then when I worked on Iron Man, that was a quantum leap forward in terms of how things were composited because they had a, a, uh, a visual effects team actually as part of the editing suite. So if I needed a shot or needed something composited, I just walked down the hall and I told these guys, this is what I need Iron Man to do in this shot, and this is what the background should look like. And you know, an hour later, there was a great 3D rendering of it. So um, it's, um, I don't like to show anyone anything now with any kind of green or blue screen, and I like to have some kind of rough composite. And actually, on Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Doug went out and just shot plates on his high 8 video camera and we'd imported that and just to use that just so we could see where we were and see how things played. I'd just like to jump back to musicals for a second. One question I have is most sequences in a musical are three to four minutes and with so much going on, dancing, multiple storylines, singing, etc. How do you work to get breathing room and manage all the information and ensure everything remains balanced? That's, a, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, in the very in the last act of Hairspray, there was a lot going on as far as the culmination of the contest at the TV station. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character was trying to get Tracy arrested, and there were all these different parallel stories going on. And still, you have this big musical number. So, how do you integrate all that and still keep the music going? And um, because of my musical music editing training, I would find portions of the music and extend it. So I would keep things in tempo. And sometimes it was, because you can't create like a 3-8 bar from a 4-4. Four four. It's just not, you just, you'll hear it. It's, it's bad. So, um, you know, you just keep the, the, the tempo steady. So I would lay out the music and then start integrating the cutaways to Michelle backstage or the policeman looking for Tracy and, and all that. Um, so it, it can be very confining because you're, you're down to the frame. Um, but that's part of the challenge of it too. In other words, it's it's restricting, but within that context, you have to make it work. And that's just, you know, I think like what Chris Levinson did and Sweeney Todd, you know, was pretty brilliantly cut considering all that was going on within those musical sequences as well. Um, so in a way, it's it's limits you because in dialogue scenes you can cheat, you know, you can line cut, you can play dialogue on someone's back. Um, a myriad of, of different approaches, but in the musical sequence, you can't you can't cut it the second half of the chorus and move it up to be the first half of the chorus. I mean, you can probably, but it would sound terrible, I would guess. So there is a structure that you have that you're confined to, that you have to work within, and that's you know, that's part of the that's the exhilaration and the challenge and and the frustration as well. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and we're sitting here with Michael Tronic.
The director of SWAT was Clark Johnson, who's also an actor. How did this relationship affect the way you edited the film? Clark's a fantastic guy. He, he actually he lives in Toronto, and um, he Clark is an exceptional human being, and he's very um, very much grounded in 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 value. So he does everything he can to help other actors get parts uh, because he knew it was a struggle. He's African-American and he knows the struggle that goes on. And um, so my only, my only quarrel with Clark was sometimes, we call them FOCs, which is Friends of Clark, that he'd give, he'd give lines to. And sometimes I say, Clark, you know, this, this isn't a good line reading. He says, you know, keep it drawn against, you know. So that's, that was a little game we had and stuff. But overall, Clark's... Um, analysis and ability to pinpoint good performance. Um, we were, again, you develop a certain working relationship, and that was the first movie I've done with Clark, um, that uh, we didn't really have that many disagreements. Uh, I think, but Clark was also a teamster. He wanted to learn everything, and uh, he's directed, uh, he directed uh, The Shield, excuse me, The Pilot for The Shield, which I think is the best show on TV. And he was an actor in The Wire, um, very accomplished, but just a great guy, very compassionate, a real, as we say, a real mensch, you know, just a real good human being, got a great heart. And that was really his first big studio film, so I had to be very supportive and protective of him because, you know, we're working at Sony, and Neil Moritz was producing it, and you're dealing with some pretty powerful folks. So um, it, w it was really never an issue for me. It was a joy, if anything, to work with Clark. The opening scene of SWAT was based on actual events. How did you rely on the real news footage for your cut? Yeah, no, it was it was riveting. Yeah. When I just one of one of those moments where the TV you stop what you were doing to watch this unfold. Um, Clark just did a great job shooting it. He shot all kinds of different formats: eight millimeter, sixteen, thirty-five, uh, some digital stuff, and um, he just kept it really kinetic and really grounded, um, and. I thought the, and it was a blast to cut, um, and, and I thought how it integrated in terms of introducing the SWAT truck and the, our heroes and setting up the characters, uh, and still not take you out of it to feel like you're part of a live event. That was our goal. Um, and um, we, we minimized the dialogue inside the bank just to kind of, because it was a little, some of, the, some of the dialogue wasn't the best in the world, quite honestly. So just by making the, the bad guys, the robbers, more threatening. We kept the quieter they are, the more menacing they are. We discovered that along the way. Um, but I was just given this amazing amount of footage, a great variety, and uh, it was like a it was like a editorial feast in terms of picking and choosing. Um, then, of course, there was always a time frame because, you know, I think my first cut for that was like 20 minutes long, and it just has to keep coming down and keep coming down and down and down and down. With so much footage provided for the opening, how did you bring it down to the final length? Uh, I think like anything else, um, you know, with the first cut, you t I tend to put everything in, you know, to tell the story as it's scripted. And then you look at it and, um, you know, things that are redundant, um, things that aren't necessary in terms of pushing the story forward. I mean, you always fall in love with certain moments and you, you hate to see them go, but you realize the audience has either seen that before or it's not 
it's not contributing to the climax of the scene and it's got to go. And then within my own editing, I'll look at trimming things and you know, coming into a cut a little bit later uh, as, as opposed to being more graceful. You know, instead of seeing someone, someone come in the door, I just have them in the room already. You know, there's lots of little motifs you have to, to pace things up. But you don't want to go too deep that it doesn't make sense anymore, where you're, you, know, you, you kind of wonder you know, what happened. So it's, a very, it's always a very, very fine balance. And, and running time is always a struggle. Not always. Um, some movies just come together and boom, you know, you're within minutes of, of the final release. Other movies are like, you've got to take an hour out, and that's a challenge. For that scene, how did you create a balance that's best for the story and the audience? Just what, what does best to heighten the tension? Um, what's, in other words, what's the purpose of the scene? Okay, the scene is a bank robbery with guys with automatic weapons who've got more firepower than, than the police. So that's a real threat. Um, there's civilians inside the bank, um, and then there's the SWAT guys who are trained. This is their, this is their bread and butter. So um, it's just a matter of trying and experimenting as far as when you want to go inside the bank, when you want to see the t SWAT truck pull up, when you want to introduce Colin Farrell and, and, and all that, and the aerial footage, and just keep the excitement and, and hopefully keep the audience on the proverbial edge of their seat. Um, but speaking of actors, the one woman hostage that got shot, I think, was an ex-girlfriend of, of, <laughs> <laughs> of Clark's. So, um, and then you're also dealing with ratings, because we wanted to get a PG-13, and, and originally shot, there was a little bit too much blood for the ratings board, so that had to be cut down. Um, and actually, pr the color, I think, was actually modified, too, not to make the reds quite as blatant. Um, it's all a matter of choices, and you know, obviously I have a script that I use as a guide to start with, um, but that sometimes can be jettisoned in terms of, wow, this, this is really cool. If we explore this, let's do that. Um, so uh, it, ca it came together fairly well, uh, but it was, a, you know, it was a continual collaboration and process as far as getting to a point that it played at its best and then the situation was resolved and you move on with the, with the film. You mentioned on the SWAT DVD that you used the original 911 calls to create a sense of pacing and timing. What are some of the ways you go about finding pacing through the material you're provided? Um, I mean, you're bringing up the sound issue, which is crucial, and because of my music background, and, because, and also I've been fortunate to work with some extremely talented sound supervisors, um, where I'll, I will start leaning on them immediately to, to heighten, some, uh, heighten the scene to help embellish what's just in the production track. Um, so we had a technical advisor who wrote out what the cops would actually be saying back and forth and what the operator would be saying. And uh, you know, it, that was something I did listen to, was the actual broadcast. And it's very chilling you know, because these operators are trying to maintain their being objective and calm when there's just complete mayhem that they're dealing with and, sh and they realize that their colleagues are being shot at. So it's a really a dire situation, but behind that, you know, their inflection is just like they're talking about a pedestrian crossing the road and not automatic weapons being shot at LAPD. Um, so that did, and just building multiple tracks and, multi and really creating a cacophony of sounds to go along with 
with the visuals. You know, obviously it's, it's crucial to the effectiveness of the scene. And then temp music, and then obviously, you know, when Elliot Goldenthal came on and wrote the original score, um, that also enhanced it. You know, and of course he had his tip of the hat to the original SWAT theme as well. That had to be incorporated. In Mr. and Mrs. Smith, it's there. The chemistry is there. In other situations where it's not there, how do you go about improving the chemistry between the characters? It was there. It was there. I saw it in the first day of dailies, which was Brad and Angelina, Angelina sitting in the marriage therapist, the counselor's office, sitting with each other. And they're magnificent. And they're terrific actors. So from that standpoint, I didn't really have to create. It was just a matter of finding what take worked and using it, because they had it. it they exuded that chemistry uh, and, and who their character was, that very strong sense of, of self, of, of John and Jane Smith. Um, if anything, the biggest challenge was making this, the movie make sense. And there were extensive reshoots in the third act, which, which worked. Um, but you just find great moments between the two of them, and there were always plenty. It was really, again, I go back to that analogy of the feast, you know, where just like every take of the two of them was just it was magnificent. It was a joy. I mean, it's the opportunity to cut two big movie stars is great. You know, it's just like I was very appreciative of that. Other stuff that went along with it was hard. It was incredibly difficult. But those two were, at, were and they're smart. Before they would approve the reshoots, they had to see the film as it existed up to a certain point. And we storyboarded and did add little previses for the scenes that wanted to be shot. And then eat Brad and Angelina asked to meet with me individually to discuss, to give me their notes and impressions. And I'd worked with Brad Pitt before on a couple movies. And uh, so there was a, it was nice having that familiarity. And Angelina was just a real pro. I mean, no pretense, no arrogance, very smart filmmakers, very perceptive and a joy to work with. So it was a, it was a, it was a great experience from that standpoint. I have to use this opportunity to ask, what is your guilty pleasure film? Guilty pleasure film? Yeah. Well, it's not chick flicks. I know sometimes we'll go to a, we'll go to a, a I'll go to see a movie that I know has been poorly reviewed that I probably wouldn't normally go but I go just to see why it isn't doing well or what went wrong uh, so I can learn from that too. And then usually I'm very pleasantly surprised because if there's no hype built up for what you're supposed to expect. I mean, I thought Batman was fantastic, but I didn't love it, you know, um, because all the expectations were so high and I thought it was brilliant in a lot of ways. But if you go to a movie with very low expectations, and say, wow, that's, you know, that's not so bad. That's, that's cool. Um, my wife and I had usually have an agreement where one weekend we'll go to a, a movie, and then the next weekend we'll go to a film. So, <laughs> meaning that, you know, we'll go to like a, because in, in a way a lot of it seeing movies for me is homework. Mm -hmm. I want to keep up with what's going on. Uh, and then I love, you know, to also see foreign films or obscure films. You know, a film like the one about Genghis Khan, you know, it's just an epic. I'd love being transported away. That's not a guilty pleasure, that's just a pleasure. I want to thank my guest, Michael Tronic, for taking part in this interview. 
The interview was conducted in August during the Edit Fest with the gracious help of the American Cinemators and Jenny McCormick. I'd also like to thank our producer, Lauren Woodcock. Remember to join the Art of the Guillotine's email list, and if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to me directly at info at I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.